Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, welcome along. It's a brand new episode of Writer's Routine this week, chatting to Claire Allen, a Northern Irish writer. She's published 16 books so far, more or less, across loads of different genres. She's been a USA Today bestseller, and her new book is Ask No Questions. We talk about flitting between genres, how she changes her method and the style of writing dependent. Uh, Also about the routine of a year uh, and how she gets many books done in that time if necessary. And you can hear how worried she gets or doesn't get sitting and waiting for the next big thing to come. The idea will come when it comes. Um, I always get this real panic when I submit a book going, right, I need another idea, I need another idea. I'm not one of these authors that has a million ideas floating around uh, in my head all the time. Some people say that, oh, I've just too many ideas. And I'm like, well, I've just too few. So I have to wait. Sometimes it'll come to me within a week or two of submitting. And sometimes I think it's like two months one time. And I was like going mad, nearly trying to force it. There is more on the way with Claire Allen in this week's Writer's Routine. Yes, it's Writer's Routine where we take a look inside the working day of some of the most successful and prolific authors around. Uh, My name's Dan Simpson. Thank you for coming back. Thank you for streaming and finding and following us. Uh, I will get you that second episode a week, by the way. I know we did it kind of through summer, then I took a little break and they've not popped up just yet but they are coming in a week or so. We'll have a bonus by a random routine for you uh, at the start of every week. Just a little boost to give you some inspiration, so make sure you follow us wherever you get your podcasts from. Uh, this week, we've got a very prolific author, published almost 20 books. Claire Allen started as a journalist. She's written women's fiction under the name Freya Kennedy as well, uh, and she's got a brand new psych thriller out. It's called Ask No Questions, all about Kelly Doherty, uh, who goes missing on Halloween night and is found dead. And then 25 years later, her friend Ingrid Devlin wants to know the truth. Now, we talk about planning the year and switching between genres, what she thinks about the beats and the plot points of Psych Thriller 2. And we start, as we always do, with what she sees around her in the place where she sits down to write. Well, where I usually write pre-pandemic or when pandemic's not in full flow, um, I am actually sitting here right now. So I'm looking directly at my whiteboard 
which is in front of me. And because I'm just sort of getting ready to start a new book, all it's written on it is what next. Um, and then to my right, I have sort of my reference books. So it's like police procedural books and forensics for dummies, which is a, actually a really good one. Um, and then, you know, just a few other, you know, Stephen King on writing and things like that, which I like to dip in and out of. And then about a bajillion um, notebooks that are half filled or scribbled on and and all over the place. So I, um, God only knows what plots you might find on them because they don't always make it into a book, but there's always one about. So you've got all, all your notebooks there. You've got your Stephen King. You've got your, your police procedural for dummies. Uh, is it That's a very... Uh, like quite a logical thing that you've got around you, practical stuff that helps you work. Is there anything inspirational on the walls as well? Um, something that just cheers you up perhaps when it's, it's a tough day? I don't know. I have, I have my two little, like in the Arabic Dilly, but I do have my two Funko Pops, which sit and look at me. So one of them's Leslie Nope from Parks and Recreation because we are the same person. I have a very similar personality. I watched the TV show and went, Finally, there I am. And um, the other one is Moira Rose from Schitt's Creek um, because I think she's a brilliant character. So they're just my like, little funny things that I can look at and um, they just give me a bit of a smile. But, you know, I, I also have a little plaque here that um, Avon here, my publishers, um, sent all their authors last year uh, when they won um, Imprint of the Year at the Nibbies. So um, it was really lovely to be acknowledged as an author and that as well, and to have our own little trophy to market. So that sort of reminds me of of where I am and who's behind me and, you know, who, who is pushing me forward in this because they're a great team. On your whiteboard at the moment, you said you've got what next. When, if I were to walk into your writing room when you're in the midst of storytelling, like you're hundreds of pages in, uh, how would the whiteboard look then? Just just describe to us what I might see. Um, it'll be in one of two sort of... Um, because uh, usually I have uh, usually I have a cork board as well. So between the cork board and the whiteboard, one will have post-it notes stuck on it. So with each chapter, with um, you know just a line or two about what's happening, and um, I will generally have a reminder stuck at the top of it that says tension, because every chapter has to have tension, and I do have to remind myself of that sometimes because uh, my background I originally wrote women's fiction, and um, with writing crime now I have to sort of relearn sometimes it's not all about the emotions and the lovely language and that and it's about building tension so that's my very practical reminder and then I also keep you know very short um biographies of my characters uh, so that when I look up I can go ah that's what his name was and you know um what age they are where they work things like that, that that can sometimes throw you in the middle of a book if you sort of forget it. Um, and then what happens if I'm writing and I forget something like that and I have to go back through the manuscript to find it, I end up getting lost in the manuscript and editing and, and instead of moving it forward. So it's really important for me that I have that visual in front of me when I'm writing so I can always put my finger on who they are and the sort of key details about them. You also mentioned how this was your setup pre-lockdown uh, at the moment at, at least here in the UK we're kind of coming out of it in dribs and drabs and different stages depending on how people feel how has lockdown 
changed the way you write? So if, if where you are now, if that's where you wrote before, where have you been writing for the last year or so? Um, well, because, you know, I've uh, generally, um, my husband has been working from home and uh, with two children who have both been homeschooling. Uh, my son's 17 and my daughter's 12. So what used to be this lovely little desk that I could come in and work at while they were all out doing their thing became a bit of a, like a family hub. So um, a lot of the time, my, my husband then would have worked at the desk and I would have um, cleared off upstairs. So I sort of become up in my bedroom, become one of those writers that sits surrounded by cushions and, and writes, which is how I started, you know, when, before, um, when I was writing my first book and that, it was like disappearing up with a laptop up to my room to write. So it's been a lot less structured um, and a lot, you know, I don't have all my little bits and pieces around me all the time. But in terms of actual routine, uh, you know, I had a really sort of solid um, daily routine prior to the pandemic, which was, you know, leave the kids to school, come back, do a little bit around the house, sit down at 10 o'clock, write for four hours, and then go and do all the school stuff again. Um, with homeschooling and everything that has gone with that, um, it's been a bit more sort of higgledy-piggledy. So I'm like, I'm writing well into the evening time or if I get a few hours during the day or could be get up early in the morning. So there's not the same structure to it that there was. And I'm really hoping to get the structure back because I find it's very productive if you sort of give yourself a dedicated window and go, this is it, you're doing it now for however many hours. So how did you take to being without structure? How did you find, I mean, there can't have been much of a transition. Suddenly we were told you need to stay indoors now and you've got books to write. How, how did you find just the process of trying to get words down when you had everything else going on? It, it was tough. I have to say I think like a lot of authors did find it um immediately tough because obviously we were we were worrying about what was happening in the world and worrying about our families you know so you had that sort of extra emotional load um and you had your deadlines didn't change um and you know I knew I was approaching deadlines quite quickly I mean um, when the first pandemic hit um I was just finishing off writing this or the first lockdown hit sorry um, I was just finishing off writing this, the new book. Um, so you know that you have to buckle down and do it, I suppose, and that's what that's what keeps you doing it and keeps you sitting down and trying to eke that time out. But it did feel more disjointed um, at times, and you didn't get those. I didn't get those big long periods where you can lose yourself in a book, and that's where that's what I love about writing. Those are the times that you know really, really fire me up as a writer when. If I'm writing for an hour or so, then the lovely sweet spot hits and it sort of takes over from there. And I can lose hours after that to the story. But if I'm doing it in like little bit fits and starts, it feels a bit more like work. How much of a learning curve can you, what, rather, how much of a learning experience was writing through lockdown? Is there anything that you can take from it? It might have been, not have been the most perfect way to work. Uh, did you learn anything about you as as a writer as as a worker that maybe you can take on with you as as hopefully we get back to some sense of normality I think I let you know the big thing I learned is that you know I can still do it when everything else is going crazy um around me and I, and I can find it an escape um you know 
even though I was writing about really dark things and horrible things happening, it was still, you know, fiction and I was in control. So it's actually quite cathartic in a lot of ways when the whole world was out of control. So that's one thing that you can learn, you know. Um, but on a really, really practical level, I think what it has taught a lot of authors is, and certainly what it has taught me, is that, you know, you have a job to do, so you've got to do it. You can't just not do it because there's a pandemic. You know, people weren't in that position. People had to do their job. And I suppose it, it grinds you and it hooks you into, you know, real life that you, you just have to do it and there's no point in, in losing yourself to worrying about something else. But I did find that, you know, I could write in shorter bursts um, as long as I did the planning. And I think planning was something that really had to come into, uh, come to the fore strongly with with this book and the book that I've written um, subsequently because I knew I was getting shorter periods of time. So I had to make sure that they counted. The first thing is, you know, you say, you know, from when you wake up to when you go to bed. And um, the first thing is that when, when you're writing a book, especially when you're in the middle of it, um, the book is with you. The characters are with you 24-7. So, um, you know, they'll be right there the minute I wake up, sort of, they'll either be going, well, what are you going to, how are you going to get me out of this mess? Or they'll be telling me how to get them out of the mess. Um, so, there's always, I think, an internal conversation going on um, between me and the characters when I'm on that. So, so they're always there. So, um, but you know, obviously, you have to get on with ordinary life. And I have, as I said, I have two children. So, it would be get up, leave kids to school, um, take the dog for a walk. It clears the head um, and sort of puts me in a good space for sitting down to write. And then I would have gone sat down in my office and tried not to get sucked into the Twitter void um, because, you know, you do have to check on your social media and your emails and all those sorts of things, but it's sort of trying to limit that to, okay, you can have 15 minutes or you can have half an hour, but then, you know, you've got to write. Um, one of the key things that I do when I'm writing is that I try to finish a day's writing in the middle of a scene um quite often at a really dramatic moment um because that makes me sort of itch to get back into it the next day when did you develop that when did you kind of chance upon that was a really good way to help you pick it up the next day no i i mean i have written a total across genres of 16 books and it was probably about book nine or ten before i really went ah that'll help um, and definitely was writing um, thrillers because, you know, you can be reaching these big crescendos um, or, you know, hooking. I want I need to hook myself in to write the next bit as much as I need to hook the reader in. Um, it can be really hard at times because you can be in the flow and you sort of have to go, no, stop and go away. You'll thank yourself for it tomorrow or, you know, later in the day or whenever you get back to it. Um, so what I do is, you know, sort of leave it halfway and then I get one of my lovely notebooks and write a few bullet points that just sort of outline what's going to very, very roughly happen next or what ideas could happen next so that I always have a jumping off point. It kind of stops the procrastination quite so much because you're looking at it and it's like a to-do list nearly. Um, and, you know, you 
when I start in the mornings, I can go, right, well, I know I'm going to finish that scene and that's going to run on to the next one. And it's almost like if I can get through everything I have on that list, then I'll have done a good day's work. So it's, I know it's probably a really silly tool, but it's going to be psychological thing that um, just gives you the urge to come in. Otherwise, I think sometimes you can feel like you're starting on a blank page every day and there's nothing as terrifying as a blank page. What time do you tend to finish up of an evening? Um, well, when everything's normal, um, I would have finished, I find it sort of four hours a day is my like ideal writing time. Um, and I would have, you know, when the kids were out and everything, it was great because that was dedicated 100% writing time. So I'd have finished around half past two and then gone and done, you know, like school pickups and stuff. And then I was able to devote the evenings to my family, um, which is obviously what they wanted, you know, help with homeworks and all those sorts of things. Um, at other times, so, you know, it's not, a, it was never a hard and fast rule because especially if I'm coming towards the end of a book, if I'm at like in the last 20,000 words, 20, 30,000 words, I, you know, I can write on to 10, 11 at night. Um, just because I'm so completely in the zone that I'm enjoying it so much that I want to keep doing it. Not even the fear of a deadline. It just gets to that point where I'm loving the process and the words are flowing and it's all coming together. And those are the days when I can write, you know, four or 5,000 words in a day without blinking. Um, where there's other days, it you know, takes the four hours to write 500 words. Uh, now, just one more t- thing on, on your writing space. I'm uh, Take me to the desk now. So... Uh, this year gets very, very niche here. Um, what software are you writing on? And uh, do you have any strong font opinions? I can't imagine a writer gets 16 books deep without having a favourite and a least favourite font. Do you know, um, well, I use Scrivener or Scrivener. I never know how to pronounce that. So that's first of all. That I think is Scrivener. I think, it's, Scrivener. I think it's Scrivener, yeah. Yeah, that is my um, software of choice, particularly for first drafts and particularly for writing thrillers because I just love the handiness of everything being in separate little folders. So I know what's chapter one, I know what's chapter two, and all the little notes you can put in. Um, I'm going to go a wee bit old school. And when I'm drafting, I quite like Courier because um, it just feels a bit oldie-worldie typewriter. Um I don't know. I just love the look of that, and and a manuscript now, print wise, probably be a bit of a traditionalist, really. You know, it'd be um, Times New Roman or something, fairly sedate and boring. But I suppose Courier is quite traditional as well. But I just there's something old school about it. It feels a wee bit like you know you're sitting down at a typewriter and the keys are slamming. When I first signed with Avon, I was doing two books a year uh, for them. And we've now stretched out, so it's one book a year. Um, the two books a year was was you know that was that was sort of tight because I was writing in a new genre as well that I'd never written on before. So it was very much a steep learning curve for me. I think I've spoken to Avon authors who have, have published three a year. Ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely crazy. Anyway, uh... it is. Crazy. You know, and there there are a number of publishers like I think Book Couture and Boldwood. Um, I write for Boldwood as well and they do like sort of you know two to three or however many you can do in a year I just think authors that can write at that level are phenomenal the most I wrote in a year was I think 
four books I wrote one year and that was I think by the end of the year I couldn't even say my own name you know it was it was so full-on but it was a very and your fingers were your fingers were just like little stumps at the bottom because you just typed away so much exactly you know and yeah you could never remember which book you're supposed to be talking about or writing or characters were getting muddled up and you know because I was writing you know uh, one thriller and then one rom-com you really hoped that you didn't mix it up somewhere in between it could have got really messy. Well, talk us through the writing routine of a year as it is for you now then, Claire. Uh, so take it from, I guess, your final hand in, the final submission for one novel. Uh, you know you need to get another one done in the next 12 months. When will you start to have ideas? How long will you give those to percolate? When will you start typing out the sentence? How long does your first draft take you? Run us through that. Yeah, um, it's a bit of a strange one, really, because... Um, the idea will come when it comes. Um, I always get this real panic when I submit a book going, right, I need another idea, I need another idea. I'm not one of these authors that has a million ideas floating around uh, in my head all the time. Some people say that, oh, I've just too many ideas. And I'm like, well, I've just too few. So I have to wait. Sometimes it'll come to me within a week or two of submitting. And sometimes I think it was like two months one time. And I was like going mad, nearly trying to force it. Um, but something will always sort of pop in and then I just sort of let it move, you know, roam about for a couple of weeks and then I'll start writing and try not to panic because I know I can write to a tight schedule if I have to. So um, in terms of sort of calendar wise, I always, um, with Avon, I have a book comes out in, you know, comes out in, it comes in Ireland and ebook in January time. So that always seems to coincide with the um, submission of the, the book that's going to follow. It's so it can be really hectic when you're, you know, promoting one book and finishing off another book. Um, and once you get into the Avon editing schedule, you know, it, it, it can be quite intense. You've got, they do, you know, a structural edit and a line edit and a copy edit and a proofread. Um, so I may try to move on to the next book while this whole editing process is happening. Um, but it, it can be very disjointed because if an edit comes in, it has to have priority because, you know, you are in a time scale then. You know that you don't want to be letting the next person in the in the queue down by not getting it delivered in on time. So the real beautiful time for me to write a new draft is once all those edits are done, once the proofread is away, um, which tends to happen around sort of September time which then leaves me four months to write um, the next the next book. But by that stage, I will have ideas. I will pretty much know what I'm you know, going in to do. And when I do start writing, I can write quite quickly. Um, and I just throw myself into it. Um, yeah, if I need to, I'll go away on a writing retreat or I'll go and stay with a friend who's a writer and, and we'll just sort of egg each other on to get the word counts up as high as they need to be. How planned out are those four months? Do you know, uh, okay, I need to get 2,000 words done on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, 4,000 on Thursday? Uh, how, how meticulously at planning are you on that end of things? I'm meticulous enough, but I always look, you know, a bit of sort of slippage, a bit of um, uh, movement in case something goes terribly wrong because life has a habit of, of going terribly wrong at times when you plan it too 
strongly. But I do find in, uh, in Scrivener, the little project target tool, I don't know if you've ever used it, but it breaks it all down for you. And again, I'm very, as I say, I'm a very visual person. Um, so I have to see all my characters' names and stuff in front of me. But the little project bar at the side of, of my page, it, it moves along the further you get through the book. And you can set yourself a little daily target. And when you hit it, it pings. And I'm like a child. I'm like, I got a ping. Um, so those little rewards keep me going. But I try, when I'm really into you know, that stage, I do try to write 2,000 words a day. I try to keep it to five days a week. But frequently I will write it the weekend as well because I just sort of want to or I'll go back and do a bit of editing and move things around. Um, first drafts are my favourite part of it. So that's like, that's the fun bit. Uh, on uh, just back to the day quickly on days when you are struggling when the words don't really come out as you say when it's one of those ones where it's 500 words in four hours rather than 5,000 is there anything that you have learned along the way that helps you out in those situations a little bit of music here a little bit of coffee there you know sometimes one of the biggest things I think you need to learn is sometimes you need to give it up as a bad job as we would say here uh, and sort of give yourself permission to go do you know what it's not happening and I'm just actually stressing myself out more trying to force words down so that's a big that's that was very hard for me to learn rather than no I will hit my target no matter if it breaks me um but in terms of really practicality and and um easing things off taking the dog out for a walk just walking somewhere in nature and trees and whatever else there's something about that I don't know whether you're it's the mindfulness or it's switching off but it it just um can unlock things and another uh thing that tends to work for me and I don't know why this is but having a shower seems to work as well I don't know it's imaginary conversation to have when you're in the shower with your characters but so many times I've been completely blocked uh, with a story and then I'll be in the shower and it'll just come to me. So um, sometimes I do refer to it, as you know, the chamber of ideas. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. 
Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We'll be back with more from Claire in just a sec. Very quickly, if you're enjoying the show, if you've learned anything in almost 200 episodes that has just slightly tweaked the way that you tell your stories... Uh, You can always say thanks to us for that by pledging to support us at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. I know it's I say every week, but I can't emphasize it enough. A little goes an extraordinarily long way. Every little thing helps. Doesn't matter what you can pledge. I'm eternally grateful for it. You get our never ending thanks. Uh, You can get some merch for the show as well. You get bonus stuff. There is also a way for your book to sponsor the show. So if we've helped you out in lockdown, if you'd like to carry on hearing some of the best authors around bringing you these chats as often as we can, uh, there is one way really to make that happen, to help us out with it. That's to get to patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Right, let's get back to it then with Claire Allen talking about her new novel, Ask No Questions. Uh, It's her newest psychological thriller all about Ingrid Devlin trying to find the truth of why her friend went missing 25 years ago. We talk about her 10,000 word starts, how she needs that time to figure things out and why during that time, because of that time, quite a lot might get binned. We also chat about the ending. She's a pantser, we know that already. Uh, How does she know when things are coming together? You can find out. And we pick things up talking about new genres and why she changes what she fancies writing. In terms of wanting to try something new, for a start, um, I just like to challenge myself. So um, I want to keep it fresh. And, and I always think every writer's always learning. So I don't think it does any harm to try something new and see if you like it and see if you're good at it. Um, I initially started writing women's fiction because that's what I love to read. And I just assumed that that would be my voice and, and what I was meant to write. Um and then quite by accident fell into writing thrillers when somebody sort of went, do you think you could write a thriller? And I went, no. But I was very stubborn and went, well, I'll give it a go. Um, and I found that I loved it. And actually that feels like the most natural voice for me to write down now. Um, where I think thrillers and rom-coms sit really well together from a writer's perspective is that writing something that is really light and lifting and upbeat and you know you sort of know what way things are going to go you know the guy's going to get the girl and you know that's all very safe and lovely that's brilliant and that allows you then when you go into writing the next thriller to sort of maybe even delve a little bit darker and to go really dark and 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 really heavy into that because you know that you're going to get the respite from it when you're writing the next rom-com so I find that it helps me balance myself, I think, I suppose, um, and helps me push genres both ways because it's it's such a distinct change. Uh, just very quickly on rom-com, something you said there is just provoked something. Um, that's the wrong word, but you know what I mean. Uh, you said you kind of know how a rom-com will end. More often than not, the guy will get the girl. Um this may sound like an aggressive question, and by I, I don't mean it to. It's just the way it will come out. Where's the joy in that for you as a creative if almost everyone knows how this is going to end? It's how, how you get them to that point. So in terms of, for me as a creative, it, 
it's how you get in that point without falling under, I suppose, all the tropes. Um, how you make a story that is as old as time something that offers a little bit different. It, whether that be it's just the voice of the characters or the setting or, you know, dynamic between a, a third or fourth character in the book. Um that's what brings the joy to it for me. I suppose it's like, you know, like you're not reinventing the wheel, but you're making nicer wheels. Um, I suppose. So it's always a challenge. Um, you could say the same of crime, really, because in, I suppose in the majority of crime novels, there is a sense of justice at the end. You know, um, most times the bad guy gets his comeuppance or you get a sense that, you know, order has been restored. It's how you get to that point and looking into people's motivations and, and what they do. So every story can still be a challenge to a writer. Um, and I suppose most genres do fall into certain frameworks. Um, but I just love taking people on different stories and, and seeing where it goes and allowing the story to surprise me. I'm not like a meticulous planner. I'm more of a pantser. So I just let the characters develop and go off on their own journeys knowing that you know ultimately we have a point at the end where we want them to get to which is you know like the happy ever after or the sense of justice you talk about those frameworks there when you first started to write a crime thriller when someone said hey do you think you can do this i'll give it a go um what would the, the the key frames and 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 I guess tropes, for want of a better word, of crime and thriller that you kept in mind as you were writing your first one? Do you know I'm going to be brutally brutally honest here. I knew nothing about it. I I had read a handful, I think, of of thrillers and and police procedurals and stuff. I was sort of woefully ignorant, and I and. I realised that sounds a wee bit arrogant in some ways, but what it meant was I had to, um, I really had to sort of study it um, and look at structure and planning and characterisation um, and have conversations with fellow authors and with editors. So it's like one thing, probably if I tell you like the biggest thing that, that was said to me uh, and the biggest lesson that I had to learn as a writer was I had this habit of writing somebody as either the bad guy or the good guy. And there wasn't a lot of shade in between. So for the reader, they could automatically identify that's the baddie, that's the goodie. Humans don't work like that. We we aren't like that as people, you know. We are every shade in between, and sometimes we're the bad guy, and sometimes we're the good guy. And it was for me to learn to make my characters more layered, um, and not fall into something that was just, you know, like incredibly obvious. So that was the biggest thing I had to learn when it came to writing crime thrillers and then I suppose you had to take into consideration things like you know not having the anonymous female victim um you know that that's something that people don't really want to read anymore you know like they're just the we don't know who she is this prostitute that's murdered and lied at, at the side of the road um and how to sort of come at it from uh not necessarily a feminist but from like a woman friendly angle too so there was there was a lot to learn um, 
an awful lot to learn. And I suppose coming from a background in women's fiction, I think I've mentioned it already, is that, you know, I used to write these lovely big passages of nice flowery prose and there'd be lots of descriptions about, you know, like what shoes they were wearing and handbags and all those things that I suppose probably are even a little bit tropey in women's fiction. Um, People don't want to read that in, in crime fiction. They just want pace and tension. So... Um, definitely was a real learning curve and I did find myself spending hours doing like writing exercises and things that I had never done before in eight published novels that came before the thrillers um, so it, it was it was like starting all over again I tend to like write, write one book that I think oh God, that was like relatively easy to write it was really good fun to write and then the next one is a nightmare so I never ever think um oh I've got it I've got it licked now I know how to do this it depends very much depends from book to book but in terms of avoiding those tropes or knowing what to look out for even in terms of structure and how things are going to go so you know your your five arc um structure you find that it it comes quite naturally um I don't honestly even I don't even think I think about it too much now when I'm writing. It's just sort of, I know I think I always hear my editor's voice in my head a little bit going, Mm-mm, don't do that. Um, and and she keeps me right. Um, but, you know, it, those five books, and I've written a, another one since, were written over the space of like two and a half years. So it was like crime writing uh, intensive course. Now, the new one is Ask No Questions. Uh, just tell us, Claire, about the moment that the idea for this story came into your head. What was the light bulb flash? How did how did this story present itself to you? Well, the, car- the main character in Ask No Questions is a journalist called Ingrid Devlin. And Ingrid actually appears in two of my other books, but she's very much a minor role. But for some reason, people... I don't know whether they love to hate her or what. Ingrid doesn't always play by in the journalism rules, I suppose. You know, she's sort of, she's not quite a scumbag journalist, but she will do what she has to do to get a story. And people seem to really, really uh, like her. And I just thought, I'm going to have to give her a book of her own and put her right at the heart of it. So when I made that decision, I didn't have a plot idea. Um, I didn't know what I was going to do. I just knew that. I wanted Ingrid to be at the heart of it. And I wanted people to be able to understand her a bit more. So sort of maybe understand why she's so ambitious, understand why she doesn't always play by the rules. But I suppose get to know that, I don't want to say heart of gold, because that does sound really, really tropey. And I don't think Ingrid does have a heart of gold, but I think she's a heart of silver maybe. Um, you know, to understand her as a person. So that was... That was my starting point. Um, and then I suppose I worked as a journalist myself um, for 17 years. So I could very much relate to that side of her story and the changes within the industry. And I suppose the pressure to always be moving a story on and, and to get the next line in it. So that fed into it as well, where the actual idea to have her, you know, sort of digging into uh a murder, a child's murder. Um, I, I do quote it at the front of the book. There's this like absolutely god awful, terrifying song that parents here in Northern Ireland used to sing to their children when they were little, and it traumatized me as a child. But it was sung as like a nursery rhyme. But it was, you know, um, who's at the window? Who 
is what it's called and it's about you know the bogeyman coming to take you away and your parents being like all right fair enough she's away I'll just get on with the housework it's a really bizarre song and it's really really creepy and that came into my head and I thought right we have to bring the bogeyman into it and that was my jumping off point and not only do we have to bring the bogeyman in, we had to bring that song into it because it really, you know, it's almost like a running joke in my family how much that song traumatised me as a child. Um, so I suppose that all ties in as well to setting. Um, it's set in my home town, my home city of Derry. Um, so it was more, for this particular book, it was more lots of these things coming together rather than one overall light bulb moment. So then what happens next for you? You know you want to write about this character. You've got these different things, these different plates that you're spinning story-wise. How do you get to know the rest of the story before you start typing? Do you know, I don't actually know the rest of the story when I start typing, which is um, maybe a bit crazy. I'll have a very rough idea. Um, But really frequently when I'm writing, like the, the whodunit changes halfway through the book or you know halfway through the writing should I say rather than halfway through the book I always like to keep it open so that if I think no that would be a bigger surprise to the reader then that could happen um but in terms of this one and I and I do find that I do this with most of my books I can write up to 10,000 words of a book and I can do that about three or four times before I finally go that's the one that's the voice that's exactly what I'm looking for, and that's going in the right direction. So when I start on a novel, an awful lot does get sort of binned or chucked away or put in a wee file for ideas that I may draw on on a later date. Um, but I never see that as a wasted time. I always see that as like exploring the character and exploring the story um, and seeing where we, we can go for it. And I knew that when I um, looked into was telling Ingrid's story in this I wanted to do it in a way that would paint her as a sympathetic character um, that would show some sort of past trauma in her life and that happened to be that um, the murder that she's looking into which happened 25 years prior to an 8 year old girl she had lived in the next street and she remembers that time really clearly and she remembers the trauma that it caused um, Part of that is, you know, like we live in we live in Northern Ireland. Derry um, doesn't have a high. This sounds terrible, but it doesn't have a high ordinary murder rate, and it certainly didn't then. And we were so caught up in the overall picture of the troubles that that was almost like the norm and accepted. But anything away from that, like the murder of a child. Uh, murder of anybody that wasn't related to the troubles would have sent absolute shockwaves through the community, which is really tight enough even for being a city. So I wanted to get just right to the heart of her background, um, what motivates her, what drives her on, and um, I suppose the ghosts of our past as well. When you're changing, well, when you're writing the the start of the book, 10,000 words, quite a lot of time, What what's happening to the voice between each of those how how is it changing it can just I suppose it it evolves or I can write the 10,000 words and go there's something not right there but looking back at it the first 4,000 words were in the right you know in the right direction so I may go back and 
rework that. And it, it, I suppose it's just given the character, because um, the character's always the centre of it for me, given the character time to come through and, and to really find themselves. And it's just once you hit the right voice, you know it. It's like instinctively you go, there she is or there he is. And that's, you know, that's where it's going to go from here. It's like getting to know somebody in real life. You know, you might have to meet with them three or four or five times before you get the sense of who they really are. Um, I find that with my characters too. And I know that sounds strange to a lot of people because, you know, I'm making them up. I should know them better than anybody, but I almost feel as if they have to make themselves known to me. Now, uh, lastly, I guess, uh, th- this story about Kelly who goes missing on Halloween night, um, you've said that the who done it for well, the person who's done it changes sometimes for you. At what point, without giving much away, at what point during this story did you figure out how it was going to come together? Um, it would have been, it definitely would have been over the halfway mark. Um, you know, it was very clear, it was very clear in the writing and very clear in the reading that, you know, that there are a number of people in the frame. Um, I know, I suppose part of me likes to sit and uh, likes to stop at some stage in the writing and go, who are the readers going to think it's going to be? If I was reading this as a reader of crime fiction, who would my money be on? And if I think that as a reader, my money would be on the person who I have earmarked to be the killer or to be the bad guy. Um, I'll almost for badness go, well, it's not going to be them then because it's too obvious. So I'll try and think of the person that is perhaps least obvious um, and and turn it that way. It's just, I suppose, there's so much pressure on uh, crime writers to get the twist and to get, you know, I never saw the ending coming um, that moment that, I, I, if I think it's too obvious, I I just can't write it. I have, I have to subvert it some way and send it off and add an extra layer of story. In. And that, I don't think that's a bad thing because it does always add something to the story. That is it for Claire Allen this week on the show. Uh, you can get a copy of the book on the episode notes wherever you're listening. We've got a link there. It's also at writersroutine.com. Next week, we're talking to Zencho about her new ghost story, Blackwater Sister. It's based on ancient Malaysian folklore, and it's perfect to get us ready for Halloween, right in the spirit. That's up next week. If you don't want to miss it, make sure you follow us. It will automatically download wherever you get your podcasts from. You can always get in touch using the contact page at writersroutine.com. Uh, by following us on Twitter, we're at WritersPod there, and you can drop us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you can support us at Patreon, we would really appreciate that, patreon.com forward slash writersroutine. I will see you next week with a brand new episode. It's Zen Chow on the show. Until then, bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.